Hey, everybody. Welcome to Cigars and Syndication. I'm Robbie Rogers. I'm here with Janae Noor, and we are here to talk about the five things you need to know about the debt ceiling, uh, part two. Hey, everyone. My name is Janae Noor, and, uh, you know, welcome back. We are still smoking this robust uh, Davidoff Intenso. It is a very Intenso cigar. Uh, I'm really, really loving this cigar. Uh, we're about, I would say a little bit of a little less than a halfway through, but uh, nice spice, great draw, very smooth. And, you know, Davidoff never disappoints. They always do a good cigar. And I, I would highly recommend not having this cigar on an empty stomach. It is uh, definitely on the stronger side. Um, really good, good full body flavor. Uh, the draw is incredible. Uh, the burn is really good. Uh, I definitely, uh, I'll definitely be adding these to the humidor. Yeah, we were uh, smoking these uh, Sunday night in Chicago, and a friend of mine uh, had some Chinese food, and then had one of these, and it did not fare well for him. So, have a nice heavy meal before you smoke this; otherwise, you will regret it. <laughs> yep, I agree a hundred percent. Today, we're gonna we're gonna finish our topic that we started on our last episode. Uh, we're gonna touch on the. Just important topics that that we think everybody should know about the, the debt ceiling. So we talked about some of the history of the debt ceiling. We related it to what the debt ceiling is uh, for for the average consumer. You know, it's, it's basically the same as making a $1,000 income and spending $2,000 uh, a month and then putting that other $1,000 on your credit card, right? And you constantly keep doing that. The only problem is that consumers don't have the ability to print money, but the U.S. government does, right? So um, as long as, you know, uh, they can keep printing money, they can keep increasing the debt. So that's not the, the issue. The issue is uh, Congress had put a mechanism in place so that the debt that is issued in any given period is limited and so that Congress is the only body that has the ability to increase or give the Federal Reserve the, the, the ability to issue more debt. And the reason they put that in as a mechanism is that so that it doesn't just get out of control and that Congress has some oversight. With all that's going on with the, the debt ceiling and, and the changes that are inevitably about to happen, how do you think that's going to impact the commercial real estate market? So <clears throat> let's go back to... Uh, what happens if there's a default, right? So default basically means that uh, the number one default would be that the U.S. cannot pay, make the interest payments on the bonds that, that we've issued. Um, so if we get downgraded in in a uh, by the by the rating agencies, uh, if we get downgraded from our AAA rating, uh, our cost of borrowing goes up. So subsequent uh, subsequent in, uh, bonds that the U.S. issues will have to be a higher interest rate because it's more risky. But other than that, um, every bank, every commercial in, uh, institution that lends money will require more uh, more interest rates, right? So because remember the standard that we always use as far as the risk-free rate of return is the U.S. Treasury, right? And right now the risk-free rate of return is currently at about 4%. And so when we're evaluating investments, we look at and say, okay, well, you know, there's a 
a commercial project, for example, we're getting into a multifamily deal, and the multifamily deal is returning, for example, 8%. Well, investors are going to look at it and say, well, the risk-free rate of return right now is 4%, and you're giving me 8%, um, so I'm okay to take that risk or I'm not okay to take that risk. But if that risk-free rate of return goes up to 6% or 8%, that means that investors will want more return on on any riskier investments. You know, with all the, the current uh, talk about the debt ceiling and uh, the possible shutdown, you know, I don't think there's a really strong likelihood that, that we're going to have a shutdown, but it still creates a lot of volatility in the stock market. And, and there's a lot of other implications that are that are going to take place, even though they'll probably reach an agreement. The debt ceiling will be increased. Uh, there's still going to be impact to the everyday consumers. There's still going to be impact to businesses, to loans, and in any maybe any government back loans or instruments. Right. So like uh, construction financing would be more expensive. Uh, uh, even something as simple as an SBA loan would be more expensive because the financial institutions that are providing uh, the loans, remember an SBA loan is not provided by the government, it's guaranteed by the government. But because the government's interest rates have gone up due to the fact that uh, its credit rating has downgraded, investors are going to require, right? So now it's become a from a risk-free rate of return to a little bit of a riskier rate of return. So investors want more return for a higher risk. And since the banks uh, are all dependent, all the financial institutions are dependent on the government's borrowing or on the government's interest rates, right? The overnight Fed rate, that goes up because, you know, the whole cycle is that the government issues bonds to investors, gives them a return. And then um, let's say they give them a 2% return and then they you know, they are giving the banks at two and a quarter percent. So if that return that's required by outside investors is higher, then the interest rates that they charge, the, the Fed charges banks for their overnight window is going to be higher. And so the banks will turn around and charge the consumers and the, the commercial uh, projects higher interest rates. Yeah. And I think that that'll have a huge impact on the actual number of loans that go out and kind of reducing the number of projects uh, and shuttering a lot of projects that that maybe when they started looking at this project, the interest rates were lower. Uh, and now it's tougher to get those loans, you know, which which ultimately just impacts the value of all commercial real estate. And in essence, in essence, it would uh, it would serve the purpose that the Fed is trying to do right now, which is shrink the economy. The only problem is that it would not be under the Fed's control anymore. So they couldn't expand. Like once you, you know, come down to, you, you lose your AAA rating, now you have to get it back up to investment grade, which is your AAA rating. Uh, when the Fed reduces interest rates or, or, or increases interest rates as they have been now, doing now recently, um, it's under their control. This would not be under their control. And in essence, it would serve the same purpose because as interest rates start going higher, projects will start slowing down or being canceled, um, the economy will shrink and the Fed will get their artificially planned 2% inflation rate. Yeah, that was a, a something we touched on a few podcasts ago. Uh, and you explained that, you know, the economy needs to shrink in order to get inflation in control. And, and man, that just, it doesn't seem logical. Well, 
you know, it, it does need to, it, in order to get the inflation under control, but the definition of control is is variable, right? So 3 to 4% inflation is, I think, is pretty healthy. The Fed is trying to get down to 2 which I think is unhealthy because they will go and, you know, they will wreck the economy trying to get to a 2% rate. So, so for consumers, that would definitely impact your your borrowing capabilities. It would impact everything from mortgages to autos to commercial lending. Any anything in the along those lines is is really going to have an impact directly on the consumer. Yeah. So credit card rates would increase, mortgage rates would increase, auto loan rates would increase, and then you know again you would have that same effect where somebody's thinking of buying an automobile. And the rates increased and they can't afford that monthly payment. And since they don't have the ability to print their own money, at least not legally, they'll, they'll not want to buy that automobile. Maybe they go and, you know, get a used car instead of a new car or they just get their current car repaired and, and stick to that. Um, but yes, that's what that'll do, right? That all, all the interest, uh, rates for consumers will increase. But, you know, what's going to affect a lot more, uh, which may cause a, a bigger cascading effect, is the fact that if the government cannot borrow money because the debt ceiling hasn't increased, uh, the, the Social Security checks that are issued will stop and the military pay will stop and a lot of government employees will start getting furloughed because they don't have the money to pay them. And, you know, that will definitely have a cascading effect because if a Social Security check stops or, you know, military pay stops, those families may not be able to meet their mortgages and they may not be able to buy their prescriptions and they may not be able to pay their car notes. And then now you have foreclosures happening, you have defaults happening on the consumer level, on the individual level, and then it's just a is a cascading effect. Yeah, that goes back to one of the the things we touched on in in the first part of this um, ep- of this podcast, and and that's just the the political pressures that are on the parties right now to make a deal and prevent the shutdown from happening. Right, and you know one of the other things was that um, back in April, the uh, press secretary for President Biden said, you know, the U.S. quote, and I'm quoting, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debts or failed fail to pay our bills. And that's mostly true, except that it has defaulted on its debts. And again, remember, we're not talking about bankruptcy. We're not talking about a government shutdown. We're talking about the ability or the ability or inability to pay its obligations, right? So are there some good examples of those, Jay? Yeah. So uh, the first one was in 1862. Uh, during the Civil War, the U.S. issued these demand notes, uh, and when people went to demand their money back, the government basically said, well, we don't have the money, you know, the war's costing us a lot of money and we don't have that much money coming in. And at that time, what happened was that states were issuing their own currencies. And so the secretary of the treasury at the time decided, you know what, we are going to standardize the currency under the greenback. And that will be the, the currency that will be used in the entire United States, the states will no longer issue their own currency. And uh, the federal government is the only one that is authorized to issue currency from now on. And so instead of uh, giving the demand notes, which actually were tradable for gold, uh, they started issuing 
that. Uh, they started issuing uh, paper currency. Uh, and interestingly enough, do you know the, the name of the Secretary of Treasury at the time? I don't. Who was that? It was Mr. Salman Chase. That name sounds familiar. It does sound familiar. So uh, that was the first time. Um, there was, so there's actually been five defaults, but one was they don't consider it a default because it was a computer glitch, as they say. Uh, but the four defaults that we know of, uh, the second one was in 1933. And in 1933, uh, the U.S. had gold bonds, and these were bonds that were redeemable in gold. And so when people went to collect their gold bonds, um, the government said, no, we're going to give you printed dollars instead. Uh, the people who were holding, the bondholders, actually sued the U.S. government, and the case went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court voted five to four that the U.S. government, as a sovereign nation, can default on its debt if it chooses to do so. I was going to turn everybody's attention back to this uh, Robusto Intenso. Um, it's getting into that second third now, and, and it's getting uh, almost a little creamy, um, a little less spicy, but I'm getting some sweet notes. Uh, the retro hell is still really crisp and amazing. I really do like the the retro hell on this on this stick. You know, I'm really glad we had a good lunch because this is a strong cigar. Um, it is very creamy, very smooth. Uh, I'm still getting a little bit of the nut, although I am getting a little bit of the spice in the back of my mouth over here. But uh, I am getting some nut, and you know, it's, this is a wonderful cigar. So, in 1968, the government had another um, default of sorts. Yeah, so you know, my parents and and a lot of the uh, parents from who are you know senior citizens right now uh, used to collect these uh, these notes uh, that were issued by the U.S. government, and they would have uh, instead of uh, the regular green stamp on it of the Treasury, it had a gold stamp on it, and it says on there redeemable in gold by the U.S. Treasury. And then they also had these notes with a blue stamp on it that said redeemable in silver. So in 1968, the U.S. government basically said, I don't care if you've got this uh, this note, which says right on its face, redeemable in silver, we're not going to pay silver for it. We're going to just give you regular U.S. dollars, printed currency. And and how did that work out? I mean, there was no lawsuit or anything that I know of, but again, that was a default, right? They 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 decided not to honor the the paying of silver or gold uh, with those certificates, um, and you know they just issued currency instead. So they just received U.S. dollars in lieu of silver or gold, right? That's correct. And the last one that we know of is was 1971, and. Uh, it, under the uh, Bretton Woods Agreement, the U.S. government uh, issued bonds in to foreign countries, and those bonds were redeemable in gold. And so when those foreign uh, governments, um, foreign holders of bonds came in, came back to the U.S. and said, hey, here's your bond back, give us gold, the U.S. basically said, no, nah, I think we're just going to give you U.S. dollars. And basically they, you know, at that time, 1971, you know, the U.S. was one of two superpowers and, you know, the, the second one being the USSR. But militarily, the U.S. was 
the biggest superpower. And, and by that time, the, the US dollar was the, the, uh, reserve currency of the entire world. So, you know, they flexed their muscle, they flexed their muscle and they basically said, no, we won't, but we have an agreement. It's called the Bretton Woods agreement. Yeah, that's okay. Here's US dollars. So, well, it just kind of seems like they can print money. They can do things that, um, that other people can't. I mean, they are the US government. They are the reserve currency. Uh, and, and hopefully we don't have any more defaults. Um, I, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon or, or, or ever, hopefully. And, and hopefully the, the political parties can get along and, and maybe one day figure out how to balance the budget like the rest of us. Yeah. And, you know, as of today, uh, Cong- uh, Congress has passed, uh, the, the debt ceiling. Uh, it's gone to the Senate. Uh, all expectations are it's going to be passed over the weekend. I think the deadline is Monday. So if it gets to the president's desk by Monday, um, everything will be okay. Uh, and, you know, I think the stock market is, is kind of reflecting that right now that everything is going to be okay. They're, they're not going to, they're not going to default. Well, I hope everybody learned a little bit about the debt ceiling today. Um, and by all means, if you have a special occasion coming up, grab you a David off Robusto Intenso and, and enjoy it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Again, we have a lot of resources available on albanyparkcapital.com. Hit the resources tab. We have a lot of, um, a lot of articles there. Follow us on our social media and leave us some comments. Now, here's something to think about before you go. What would happen if the U.S. currency was no longer the reserve currency of the world? Because this happened before. I mean, right before the United States dollar, it was the British pound. I mean, those are deep thoughts. Those are deep thoughts. Everybody, uh, that might be a... a a preclude to the a precursor to the next podcast. Who knows? Yeah, I think we might we might dis- we might discuss this in one of the next podcasts. But you know, go go look it up yourself, and you know, go do some research and and get you know get some knowledge on this and get understand how the system works. Hey, thanks for watching, and we hope to catch you next time. Thank you.